0: Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. We talk with aeronautical engineer Patrick Reardon about career planning, Archimedes' lever, and the Star Trek method for managing your boss's expectations in this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff civil engineer, Adam, and electrical engineers, Brian and Carmen, as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 83, Career Planning, May 28, 2015.
1: So Jeff, have you been able to change the world during the course of
0: your career? Uh, no. I mean, I don't know, maybe in some small way I've changed the world, but, uh, I, I've noticed that uh, a lot of the uh, young engineers I run into—that's—that's that's, uh, their anticipation—they're going to be able to to change the world. And uh, you know, when, when I graduated, I my my only desire was to find a job. I wanted a paycheck, <laughs> and changing the world was kind of the you know, at the outer remote edges of my uh, my consciousness. So, uh, I think you know we do change the world. Of, you know, one person at a time, one activity at a time, one job at a time, one step at a time. Uh, but uh, I don't think I've radically changed the world. It's not like I've, you know, created Google or Apple Computer or some major corporation that has a huge economic effect on the world. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I suppose in my little way, you know, my interactions with people and the designs I've done and the, uh, the machines I've created, that uh, maybe I've created some small change in the world. Uh I don't know what about you brian have you have you changed the world i think uh no <laughs> <laughs> no not at all
1: but i don't know okay. i I don't think my ambitions were uh as uh grandiose. I'm a child of the dot com crash and I watched a lot of people uh with very grand ideas look like morons after a couple <laughs> of years right so i uh I tend to be a little bit more cynical about things. Yeah. And also, I I at least was able to read and see enough history, like as you said, start Google or start Apple to realize that those were not, while they may have been kicked off by one or two people, those were companies that were built by thousands upon thousands of people, you know, working as a team. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I think it's difficult, especially if you if you're ambitious early in your career, you you look out, and you're gonna you know you're gonna make a huge impact and and make the world a better place, and uh, you look out and and a few years down the road, uh, you go, boy, this is a lot tougher than I thought, and uh, you know people are sort of uh, stuck in their their patterns, their ways, their habits, and uh, their interests. And uh, so I think it's really, it's really important that, uh, especially at a young point in uh, your career, if you're a young engineer, you, you just have a, a realization of all the things that are sort of um, working against you if you're going to change the world. And I don't mean that, that it can't be overcome, uh, but you need to understand that when you go to work for a company, their interests are not necessarily aligned with yours, okay? The, the, the point of a business is to uh, make profits, and they want to reduce uncertainty and their ability to make profits, uh, so they may assign you to you know quality control and and looking over the you know manufacturing of the same widget over and over and over, which is of little interest to you professionally, but it's of great interest to them because it, it helps them make profits and that's what a business is it's a profit making machine you know if somebody has gone through the, the startup the entrepreneurial phase to figure out what a formula: What's uh, configuration the business works to make money, and now that they've figured that out, now they want to do more of it. You know, they grow that business, and so the the business interest is in making money, not in making you happy as an engineer, right? Um, and then you have your personal interest: what what you like to do, what you find interesting, and so uh, whether you find uh, designing circuits uh, interesting or designing machinery interesting, these may be things that you find. Personally challenging, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily aligned with the business interests. Um, there's alignment of financial interest. So now you found a job you like, or you found a, a, a an interest you like. But now, can you make any money at it? So if your passion is, you know, recreating eight bit CPUs from relay logic, well, that is a that is an interesting passion, and I would if there's somebody out there that wants to talk about that we'd be happy to have them on the show to talk about that passion maybe but i'm not sure th- <laughs> maybe <laughs> but i'm i'm not necessarily certain that you're going to find much financial success in that because there aren't many people looking f- to recreate 8 bit CPUs with uh, ladder logic and and additionally there's alignment of sort of our self-esteem interest in addition to you know a technical interest uh that keeps us fascinated in our mind We have a certain, all of us, you know, have a certain amount of ego. We want to be liked. We uh, perhaps want to be well-known. We want to be famous for what we've done. Well, we may or may not be able to do that and also be financially successful. Uh, We may or may not be able to do, uh, become famous and also do what we like doing. Uh, Sometimes we start out doing what we like. There's a a famous book called The E-Myth for Entrepreneurs, and it talks about the person who's the, uh, the, I think it was a cake baker or, or pie maker and uh, you start out making pies, and then you like it. You're good at it. You make money, and so you have to make more pies. Well, sooner or later, you have to quit making pies. You have to become a manager. So by the very uh, by your own success, you pull yourself out of doing what you love, which is baking pies, and you have to become a manager in order to grow the business. And so, uh, you know, sometimes in our desire to uh, uh, to to be known for running a great business, we have to give up on something else, perhaps our technical interest. And and finally, there's societal interest. You know, if we're really talking about changing the world, if we want to, uh, you know, we want to uh, reduce poverty, we want to reduce hunger, or we want to, you know, improve sanitation around the world. These are all great things, but who is going to supply the money for that? You know, where is the financial interest? Well, for many big corporations, there's not a big financial interest. Uh, For many smaller uh, charities, they have the interest, but not always the money. And so you have to align that. So, you know, a long spiel on my soapbox, but uh, my point is that you have to get a lot of things to line up with one another at the same time if you're really going to change the world. And so I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying young engineers need to be somewhat realistic about uh, what the world presents and and the challenge that it will be if you're going to, quote-unquote, change the world. And so... Uh, For this episode, which is talking about this this idea of career planning and career path uh, navigation, uh, we're going to talk to aeronautical engineer Patrick Reardon, a lead engineer for Liftoff Engineering Services located in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, And uh, Patrick, welcome to the Engineering Commons.
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's pretty great to be here in studio. Uh, It's real, real nice. Um, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of rumors going around with your fans that you guys record in like you know a giant helicopter floating above the scene. Of course, that's you know not true. It's a more supervillain slayer, I would say. Is that what you call this?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah sounds right. Sounds so, right. Like, anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, we, we need we need something to keep our fine art, you know, hanging on the wall at the right angle with the proper lighting and, uh, <laughs> you know, and the right air conditioning, uh, humidity yeah, right. controlled. So. Yeah. So we we put some thought into to the studio. Yeah.
2: <laughs> where else would you keep the train sharks, you know, really?
0: Exactly. So Patrick, uh you are, if I understand correctly, uh fairly young in your engineering career. And so you're sort of at that stage where you're now beginning to uh uh to think about these, you know, where where does my career path take me? Yeah. Uh, but but first uh can you tell us uh, share with us uh, what got you interested in engineering?
2: Yeah, it was kind of, um, I think you've heard this story probably every episode you've done. But, uh, you know, like tinkering as a kid, lots of connects and Legos and uh, okay. a very handy dad who was always making stuff and, you know, fixing stuff and had uh, that kind of do-it-yourself attitude slash stubbornness of like, well, if so-and-so can figure out how to do this, I can too, you know. So there's always that that stubbornness <laughs> of like, I-, I can figure out how this works. I- it's no big deal. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing that for a while. Uh, as, as far as, like, the um, aviation side of things, uh, I started working at airport when I was about 16, um, just doing hangar maintenance at the time. I was just kind of, a, you know, uh, assistant to the lowest people. I was, like, the lowest guy on the totem pole. It was a lot of, uh, you know, cleaning oil and stuff like that. But uh, so I've been involved in aviation since I was 16, which has been cool. I just refused to leave. Okay. And so do you have your private pilot's license? Uh, I don't, you know, uh, working on it. There's uh, got to buy the house first, and then that'll be the next big expense, maybe. Yeah, but uh,
3: emphasis on the big expense
2: there. <laughs> yeah, right, okay, exactly. <laughs> don't want to be able to fly or put a roof on my head, you know. So can go either way.
0: Yeah, it's a toss up some days, so.
2: <laughs> but one of these days, definitely.
0: Right. Well, so uh, as a as an aeronautical engineer. You made that decision to go into uh, to aviation, obviously, because you'd been around it and been exposed to it. Yeah. Do you have any sense of, of how many, you know, aeronautical engineers there are in the United States? Um, yeah, as far as, uh,
2: you know, I was kind of looking up engineering statistics, kind of as uh, leading to this podcast. And the big thing that kind of came up, at least when I was in high school, um, both my grandfathers were pilots, and I really wanted to be, you know, aircraft designer. So I was like, all right, I'm going to design airplanes. And uh, so I heard, you know, through my friends in high school that the way to do that is, uh, you know, you get to college in the aerospace engineering program. Um, And maybe this is particularly stupid even for a high schooler. But I kind of thought, like, you get into a program (laughs) and then it's smooth sailing. That's, you know, that's life. It's easy after that. Right. Um, So statistics are, uh, let's see here. Uh, So once you get into an engineering program, uh, your graduation rate is about 50%. Um, So, you know, one in two people will graduate once they get into an engineering program, but the dropout rate is pretty front loaded. Uh, But as far as transferring transferring into an engineering program, it's uh, 93% of the graduates started in engineering. So, you know, it's unlikely that you'll get an engineering degree if you didn't start in engineering.
0: In mechanical engineering the way they got to that 50% dropout was thermo. The first thermo class was the dropout course. Uh, (laughs) uh, Many years ago when I took it, the dropout rate was, I think the year I took it, 60% of the class, that six zero got a D or an F in thermo one. Uh, And I thought that was high, but I, apparently the numbers are still about the same. Uh, many years later, maybe it's 50%, yeah. but there's still, that is the flunk out class. So I'm in aeronautical. What is the, what is the class? That's funny. Cause actually
2: that was, that was my class too. I uh, dropped it the last day <laughs> you possibly could and retook it. So I'm <laughs> one of those people. Um, well, yeah, that one was a big one. Uh, dynamics got a lot of people. It's like usually what happened was they would struggle through statics and then dynamics came and they're You know, their statics wasn't good enough as a foundation, then stacks just totally threw them. But uh, that was a
1: big one. Right. They let you do thermal before you take calc? Um, Let's think about this. I guess I did thermo sophomore year.
0: Yeah, so usually the the, the, you you have your calculus courses in your freshman year, and then thermo is your first class sophomore year. That's when they're going to drop you. Ah.
2: Yeah. Definitely, and yeah, so that, that's funny that you say it though, because that was exactly my experience. And I thought I was an idiot, so I feel better now. I yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that you know, that's probably that's probably the whole reason for that fifty percent you know dropout rate. But um, so you know, then once I got to college and realized that. Um just being in the program won't get you a ticket to Easy Street. I thought, you know, once you need to graduate, that's kind of common uh common wisdom is once you get a degree, you know, you're totally employable. It's easy street from then on out. Um but yeah, so again, not, not super bright. Uh, so the statistics are um there are three million people in the US with an engineering degree. Yeah. Um, but only about one in three engineering graduates will work in engineering. It's yeah. um, it's higher in STEM related careers, but as far as, school, you graduated, want an you know, job? Uh, you're about one in three chances." Which, uh, yeah. you know, just getting a job in general is fine, but for a lot of people, they wanted to be an engineer, so it's it's still tough. <laughs> so, right. You know.
0: right now, now an interesting point is I I looked recently at the uh, for mechanical engineering at, the, at some of these uh, labor statistics, and if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, yeah. uh, they list about two hundred fifty thousand mechanical engineers in the U.S. currently employed. And if you look at their, the National Science Foundation does a, I don't know, every five or ten years they do a survey of the working population, you know, figure out how many engineers and scientists they have. And they get come up with like 540,000 engineers. And I looked at those numbers first and said, how is it the Bureau of Labor Statistics <laughs> has 250 wow. and NSF gets, you know, 540? Yeah, right. Well, if you look carefully, the Bureau of Labor Statistics talks only to the employers, oh. and the NSF asks the employees to self-identify. <laughs> and so, what the indication is that there are there, there are many there are many engineers who have moved on to positions where their employers no longer consider them to be engineers. Mm-hmm. But they still consider themselves to be engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of interesting that we we we're so proud of our engineering title that we yeah. you know our identification as an engineer that no matter what the no matter what says is on our business card we will damn well define ourselves as being engineers.
3: Well, that makes sense. I mean, what rock band says they sold out? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's still stuck to their
0: roots. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you right. still rock just as hard man give me that lab give me the soldering iron which one's the hot end <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's kind of like uh the musician analogy is like oh so are you a musician oh yeah yeah okay what well, do you play in a band well no but i own a lot of instruments well do you play them boy oh, yeah, i got a lot it's like well they want the title just don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> i could do smoke what on the water the- Yes, yeah, so that's very interesting. Actually, looking up statistics, um, I was trying to figure out how many engineers are employed by, you know, various companies. And a lot of them won't tell you specifically. I think they're proud to right. say they have a lot of science-related people without breaking down. So, like Lockheed Martin, for example, which is a great company. Um, uh, but looking at their statistics, one question was asked specifically, how many engineers do you employ? And the answer was, We employ sixty thousand engineering and science related people. Like, what's well, Science is pretty broad, <laughs> but, um, said, it's yeah, funny. so
0: is engineering,
2: <laughs> right? That's a good point. Yeah. It could be, um, yeah, for example, in aviation, there's a career path called flight engineering, uh, which is now becoming pretty quickly obsolete. It's being replaced by uh, electronic cockpits, but basically you're just reading, you know, measurements, uh, not necessarily design work, just in the cockpit reading different flight instruments, um, as you're flying around, which, you know, is that, is that any but you know, there's a lot of engineering disciplines you wouldn't necessarily consider as your typical engineering, but they're out there.
0: Right, right, and and uh, we've talked to before. I don't know if we talked on the pad podcast, but I mean privately, we've had conversations about how engineering is a very uh, here's a technical word, nichey yeah. <laughs> uh, profession in that that uh, you know a, a broad field like electrical or mechanical. There's just so many little bits that you might be doing, and depending on which company and which division of which company yeah. and which group of which division uh, and which boss you have and what the situation is, you may be doing something that's very, very narrow uh, and very unique uh, that you share with with very few other engineers in the world. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, for that reason, it's a great career. You never know what you're going to be doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But, um, yeah, so, uh, so your original question was about how many you know aerospace engineers are out there. And um got very sad track, <laughs> Really dropped the ball. Uh, but just getting to the point that, you know, engineering you in general great? is a different field. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a difficult career path to get into, especially if you, you know, have exactly one job in mind. Like I want to design, I don't know, RoboCop or whatever. Uh, so you got, you know, the 50% graduation rate. Once you graduate, you have a one, three shot of um, getting an engineering, you know, job. Uh, as far as aerospace engineers, mm-hmm. there's uh, 83,000 uh, aerospace engineers in the United States. Um, as far as how that breaks down, at least this is anecdotally, but uh, when I was in class, everyone kind of wanted to design aircraft and specifically, you know, design the wings of a new fighter or whatever. It's all about airfoils and, uh, you know, all about um, kind of fluid dynamics, and that kind of stuff. Whereas uh, if you look at the statistics of the kind of career breakdown for aerospace engineers. Um, The certification side is a huge deal for any kind of safety or high safety requirement uh, industry. And I'm sure you can talk about civil, but um, basically anytime that you're not allowed to fail, (laughs) you, you know, there's a lot of certification and substantiation and safety that goes along with that. So obviously aviation, they don't want planes falling out of the sky except, you know, raises drink prices. Uh so the <laughs> FA employs about a thousand engineers directly. Uh, and then there's a position called DERs within aviation. Are you guys familiar with that or
3: not personally, no. I am.
2: Yeah, it's 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 kind of analogous to a P and uh civil, but just kind of uh you know, you get experienced enough, you get this delegation, and you can kind of sign off and certify drawings as airworthy.
0: <clears throat>
2: or, you know, aircraft or whatever. Um, okay.
0: And what does DER stand for?
2: It's uh so I'm sorry, FA is the uh, Federal Aviation Administration. It's the governing body that oversees aviation, um, which mm-hmm. would, these are things that never came up in school. You know, you're, you got a lot of math to cover. So you don't really talk about the career specifics, which is kind of the purpose of this podcast is there's a lot of stuff out there. But uh, so, yeah, for those of you, you know, yeah. going into aviation or whatever, uh, yeah, FAA is the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, DERs are designated engineering representatives. So they're not employed by the FA, but they're, um, kind of delegated by the FA as having enough experience and enough knowledge to, uh, stamp things as, you know, airworthy and given the approval. Uh, so DERs, yeah, designated mm-hmm. engineering representatives. There's, uh, a couple of different kinds. There's consultant DERs, company DERs, and there's another thing called, uh, ODAs, which is kind of newer, but, uh, Overall, there's things like 2.4 thousand consultant DRS six company. It's about 10 or 12,000 uh, people in the cer- certification industry, just as DERs. And they usually have quite a few people under them. So, mm-hmm. a huge part, maybe one in seven engineers in the aviation industry is on the certification side. We're not necessarily doing design work, but you're doing uh, kind of the grading we are substantiating and uh, making sure designs are going to work, right. which um, isn't something that a lot of people you go to school with, particularly like, I want to be a grader, but uh, it's, you know, <laughs> a lot of people will really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, um, so it's, you know, it's a career path that's out there that very few people are aware of, uh, you know, in undergraduate.
1: Yeah, the D- D- DERS I've interacted with typically, I mean, uh, they could come and witness a test, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to do, um, like, you're going to snap the, do a loading test, snap the wings off a, you know, Boeing 7X7. Yeah. You know, those are going to be the primary people for whom that test is being demonstrated. Yeah. Um. Or uh, if you have to make a, a case as to why the, design change you're making doesn't require a recertification of the airframe. Uh, they're typically the people who would make the ruling. Yeah.
2: And it's, uh, it's almost halfway between engineer and lawyer because you're dealing with, yes. uh, all the different regulations and, uh, you know, deciphering the legalese to find out what you can get in the air. So, uh, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, that's a good way to point it for sure. Um, yeah, so it's uh, like everything else in engineering, it's really varied, and there's a lot to look at.
0: Oh, you mentioned the uh, the abbreviation ODA. What is ODA? Uh, I'm blinking right now.
2: <laughs> uh, man, I don't want to. I don't want to miss <laughs> okay. old podcast. Uh,
0: well, that's all right. We can look it up.
2: Post it in the show notes. The FAA came out with a new. Supposedly streamlined procedure where they're given less oversight to uh, particular people as long as they kind of set up their manuals and quality st- steps ahead of time. So ODA is like the new DER or the new attempt to make a similar authorization, but it's it's you know like everything else is complicated. <laughs> but uh, okay, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> so again, you know, about one in seven. It sounds like federal regulations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, yeah. We're going to make things simpler by complicating it immensely. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so about one in seven aerospace engineers winds up and the certification route. Um, as far as, you know, specific design work, the big thing I came across is that no one designs an airplane. Like, there will be a team of, you know, 10,000 they design an airplane <clears throat> so for example the big companies make up about 50 percent of the total aerospace engineering workforce like 16,000 work for boeing alone which you know there's only 83,000 aerospace engineers in the u.s and you know mm-hmm. 16,000 of them worked for boeing so with those big companies you're not necessarily designing a whole airplane you're designing incremental you know improvements to one specific part of you know one system which is um you know, usually I a team, it's still really rewarding and it's very challenging, but it's just not what t- people typically look at and imagine when they're, you know, planning out their aerospace engineering career.
0: Right. So so maybe this is a good point to sort of uh, uh, summarize, you know, as you think back to what you thought your aeronautical engineering career would be when you started, say, your engineering schooling yeah. uh, versus what you're doing and what, what your expectations now are for what your career uh, will be. Can you you sort of draw us a little, you know, uh, verbal picture of of what you thought it would be and what it actually has become? Um, yeah. Well, for me specifically, I was one of the
2: people who was like, yep, you know, I'm designing the next aircraft. It's going to be, you know, an awesome fighter or a transformer, or, you know, whatever. Um, and it's, it's kind of ironic that uh, I think engineering <laughs> is the field where you kind of take math and data and numbers to predict an outcome. But uh, very few of us take math and numbers to predict our career outcome, um, which you know is something I'm now trying to do <laughs> a little bit late. Um, but yeah, as far as you know, what I anticipated versus what I hap- what happened to come across, you know, I got really lucky with uh, uh, my career. But it's been a lot of um, mostly repair and maintenance work to existing aircraft. And uh, it's been actually it's been a lot of the design work in it, but it's been uh, usually you have an existing aircraft. You have a customer who wants to um, update the equipment or update, you know, some other aspect, and we'll be in charge of, you know, putting on an anti-missile system or you know maybe just Wi-Fi on it or anything in between, you know. Um, but it's a big the biggest difference between what I anticipated and what uh, actually occurred, and you guys can probably chime in is. Um, you expect to be in charge of design of some huge new invention or discovery, and what you'll actually be in charge of is some smaller incremental improvement to some existing design. Is that, uh, been your experiences? Or,
3: yeah, yeah, definitely <clears throat> got a frog in my throat here. <laughs> Super <laughs> professional. Let me hit the mute switch. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, I've been rambling for half an hour.
3: So, <laughs> uh, no, you know, at least in. My, my experience, uh, you know, electrical engineering was, yeah, you were taught that you were going to design, whether it was, you know, IC design, you're going to be at the transistor level, you know, inventing crazy new circuits that no one's ever seen before. And, you will you'll revolutionize the industry and everything. But, <laughs> you know, no one mentions the test engineer who, yeah, doesn't know about transistor level design, but can still debug an IC like nobody's business and can give you yeah. reams of data of how, you know, Thousands, if not millions, of parts have performed over corners and all sorts of lots, and what trends you can draw from it, and it—it's still very much engineering. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's,
3: it's, definitely. Yeah, there's there's this hidden side.
2: Yeah, and you guys uh, touched on it really well in your uh, engineering expert episode. I think mm-hmm. where I uh, talked about that a lot of engineers feel like, oh, I'm not doing that much engineering these days, when in reality that that is engineering for every you know one hour of Design and calculation, there's 20 hours of just crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Yeah. You know.
3: Double checking the math and everything. And yeah. 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 I definitely bought into the hype. You know, I thought I'd become a designer and granted I did get into the IC design industry, but, uh, you know, as an absent, yeah. I, st- <laughs> I still do, you know, quite a bit of design work. It's not at the transistor level, but, you know, explaining switching regulators and power and proper layout techniques to people who are not power experts is that also takes some engineering, you know, you got to interface on both sides. Um, you know, I have to know a topic well enough yeah. to convey it to somebody who doesn't in order to get them to understand why it's important. So our parts can perform. Definitely. And, you know, I, and, uh, you know, as far as I, I was going to say, I just didn't, I didn't have a class on that, you know, as a, as an undergrad.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. you spend so many classes, uh, learning this really complex math or analysis and all that. And then you'll have a couple of group projects. You have to work with people, of different expertises and different backgrounds. And, it's always a drag and like, what a waste of time and that always ends up being the most useful experience you have in the engineering Yeah, career. dealing
3: with the one guy who's not pulling his weight and yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as, uh, you know, my experience uh, in aviation in particular, I'm sure every field, there's a lot of um, checking against different failure modes. So you'll look at a structure and say, okay, you know, how's the you know margins? Uh, is there going to be like stress corrosion? It's going to be galvanic corrosion? Is there going to be, you know, are the th- threads, uh, you know, locked correctly? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I always in college kind of looked at real engineering as the like structural analysis and the really high level of calculus. Since I learned, you know, a lot of really high level math and then I got to the hangar floor my first day, and they're like, okay, you know, the gondola bonding strap is getting galvanic corrosion on the terminal blocks. You're going <laughs> to need to reroute it. And I was like, Okay, you know, leaving knowing what two of those words meant. Mm-hmm. So it's like, for all that math you learn, <laughs> the real experience you have in engineering, it's all that, you know, all the other stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of it is, you know, speaking the lingo, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just subfield, you know, it's divide the field up into a hundred different ways, each subfield, and then each company has their own lingo, and <laughs> you yeah,
2: you got to pick all that up, too. And, uh... Definitely, and uh Jeff, I think you brought this up before that um, usually in school you're trying to minimize the material or you know uh, trying to minimize stress, whatever. Where a lot of times machining costs are the biggest constraint or material costs. So usually your analysis will be, is it good enough? Okay, <laughs> that's going to be fine then. You know.
3: Yeah, yeah, I've, I've experienced right. that too with meeting Intel specs. You know, it's. Yeah, I'd I'd love to sit and tinker and find the absolute minimum, you know, number of capacitors or just how how much phase margin can I get away with losing and to get the faster transit response. But at the end of the day, yeah, you pass. (laughs) 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 And then, then, you know, I'd pass and cut off a little margin just to show our parts, you know, top of the line or whatever. Cause there we go. In, in an actual product, it's, it's very different from our eval boards. And, you know, you always got to add more margin back. So, and I still <laughs> have deadlines to meet, but
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that, that may sort of lead us into uh, a conversation that we can have about, uh, expectations, our career and our expectations. And I thought we could talk for a little bit about, uh, expectations on the job. So whatever job we're currently in, the expectations we have about that, uh, and then, maybe talk some about career expectations beyond the current job uh what our expectations might be about future jobs because the the number of people that are fortunate enough to hire onto a company and stay with that company for forty years uh is is greatly reduced from what it was a generation or two ago um and 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 finally, I thought if we've got enough time we'll we'll talk a little bit about changing the world if you really want to go change the world uh what you need to do to to be ready to to handle that. So let me, uh, let me start off with the, with the, uh, the uh, job expectation uh, bit, and uh, you guys can jump in. Um, so the, the, the sort of the structure that I'll, I'll present is that, again, understand that in your job, your employer wants you to do things that are going to make them money. They want you to reduce the risk of their operation to, so they make more money and more reliably make more money right? And so typically we'll go into a job and we have our own expectations about what the job will deliver to us. So we may want personal growth and we would like that, you know, during the the, the, uh, the course of our job, our employment with this company, we're going to mature. We're, you know, we're going to gain some maturity, some confidence. We might uh, improve our tact in dealing with other people's and dealing with, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of, conflicting situations, uh, uh, the tensions, uh, maybe improve our political awareness, be more aware of the political powers at play. Uh, we might also want to improve our technical ability we, you know, to learn how to do a certain uh, type of analysis that we've not done before. So those are things that we want as far as personal growth when we go into the job. But we under, have to understand that's a compromise because the business, our employer, again, they want to make money they may uh, they may accommodate our desire for personal growth because it's in their interest to make our, us happy so that we make them money but it's not necessarily uh you know what they're looking for and so other things that we might expect from our job uh, things like life balance again we want that our employer may want us to work 80 hours a week uh b- benefits you know we we all want a job so we have health insurance or if we're trying to improve, uh, you know, extend our education, we might, may want educational assistance. Those are things that we want and we can negotiate with our employer about. But again, they're trying to reduce the amount of money they're spending on their employees, you know. Um, and then finally, salary and compensation. Again, we want to make more money. That's good for us. But again, our employer is, is looking to reduce their uh, salary uh, cost.
3: That's why we had to take on this podcasting gig, just so we could
0: keep the lights on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, so that's sort of the, the the framework. We can talk more about that. But I just uh, uh, I wanted to put out that, that – and understand it because I don't think as a young engineer you go out and you go, well, I, I want a better salary and I want benefits. And all of a sudden you're getting a lot of pushback from your employer going, well, that's fine, but no <laughs> – <laughs> and, and, and and the reason for that for that conflict, for that tension between uh employer and employee.
3: Yeah, I, I can definitely say personally, uh, you know, I I definitely feel more confident than I did, you know, even two years ago. Um, now that I've gone through the rigmarole of getting a couple parts out to the market, and it's it's just amazing to see, you know, the stuff that would bother me and would have me. "Quote unquote," up at night, uh, <laughs> I just kind of breeze through now.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I, I, I faced with something new. My first instinct is always, well, "I don't know how the hell you would do that." Why? I don't know. Go ask somebody else. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I could muscle my way through it and get you know an answer, a satisfactory answer with you know some effort possibly.
0: But I can find an answer now, right? Right. Well, so I, I think one of the important things to be clear about then is is as engineers, if we have expectations, we need to be clear with our managers or the, you know, the people we're working with or for about what our expectations are. That um, it, it does us no good to go into a job and, and, you know, kill ourselves working 80 hours a week and doing all the analysis. Uh, and, and at the end of, of the project, the boss may go, hey, Thanks. You did a great job, <laughs> but 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 they may not at that point realize that in return for that we wanted a promotion or we wanted more money or we wanted you know uh, educational benefits whatever it may be um, before you before you kill yourself you know doing all this work you need to have that discussion with the appropriate person saying uh, I understand there's a challenge here's what I'm willing to do this is what I expect now well whether you know they will always follow through on what they tell you you can expect well, that's a different issue sometimes unfortunately they don't uh but at least that that uh conversation should be had up front so that you don't uh you don't end up having done all this work and feeling like you're not appreciated at the end if if you don't make them aware of it at least at the start, there's no hope that you're going to get that appreciation at the end
2: I actually uh worked with a guy who um you know, it's a really great work ethic and um, a little bit lower on the, the communication skills. And so a program manager would, you know, assign him a new program. And mm-hmm. uh, he'd go, oh, my God, this program manager doesn't know what he's doing. This schedule is crazy. It's stupid. He doesn't know. It's horrible. He shouldn't have a job. And stress out, stress out, work and work and work and do everything he could to get it done on time and in budget. So the program manager went, great. I did my job well. Everything went okay. Right. Um, and then that would happen again. <laughs> so, and it's like, well, I guess, I guess the guy was right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, it's just that, you know, that lack of communication that like you're talking about of either maybe not caring, but hopefully just not knowing that that was the process that's going on for the engineer.
0: Yeah. And, and I, if, if you look at all, I mean, if you look for, uh, under, you know, clear, uh, setting clear expectations, there are, you'll find tons and tons of articles for managers about setting clear expectations for employees right mm-hmm. but i think that as engineers those with technical knowledge uh we have every right to be clear about our expectations with our boss now you don't want to cha you know you don't want to be uh snippy with your boss you don't want to challenge your boss's authority but you want to make it clear that uh here's what here's what i understand you're asking for from me here's what i think i can deliver are we clear on the expectations uh and and again I think in in uh, at least when I was doing you know consulting business ninety well i'm ninety percent of the jobs seemed to be managing expectations, you know everything was managing expectations and and so I, you know thinking back on my engineering career when I was working for for bigger corporations, I think that still holds you know so much of what we do is expectations, and how we get rated on our annual review is so much a comparison not of what we actually did. But our performance relative to the expectations, um, and so I don't. I think it's uh, perfectly reasonable for us to uh, to be clear about our expectations with our, our managing authorities, as as well as for them to be clear about their expectations with us.
3: Well, that's why we we already have our example. You have the the Star Trek method, you know, where you don't tell them how long it really takes. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the exchange. I'm I'm looking it up on IMDb. I actually don't know jack all about Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever the hell this is. Uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Commander uh, Jordy LaForge and Scotty are having a conversation about you know some spectral analysis that the commander wants done, and you know. Lieutenant Commander Forge is, you know, well, I told the captain I have this done in an hour. Well, how long will it really take? An hour. Oh, you didn't tell him exactly how long it would really take, did you? Well, of course. Oh, uh, you got a lot to learn if you think people are going to, you know, <laughs> assume you're a miracle worker. <laughs> 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 My boss quotes that one to me, too.
2: What the... Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, as far as managing expectations, right? Uh, it seems like the people who get put in the hardest, maybe most stressful positions are the ones who have a hard time saying no to people or have a hard time, you know, disagreeing. So someone will come up and say, you can get this done the next, you know, however many hours. And they'll say, uh, okay. And, uh, you know, and then they won't be able to. And then, you know, there's the working off the clock and the stressing out and, you know, um, all the, all the things that, you know, could have been solved just with proper communication. So just, uh, Kind of yeah, managing your expectations and communicating with what the realistic timelines are.
0: Well, but but, and, but that's what we do, right? We're engineers. We solve problems. We love to solve problems. We, you know, our 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 egos get boosted <laughs> by solving problems yep. for other people. So somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, solve me this problem." We're just busting at the seams to go jump on that, you know, uh, uh, situation and and get it fixed. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very hard for us to uh, to say no, and and good managers know that they know which buttons to push to get their people to uh, to perform. It's usually beer related. <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: usually had the uh, more difficult issue of communicating what you do and do not know, and I, I don't mean in terms of you know background information, but. Whatever strategy you are going to pick going forward is predicated upon having an answer to some experiment, or you know, finding root cause. And finding root cause is a very non-linear and very difficult to plan process. And mm-hmm. uh, as much as people desperately try to make it and organize, well, have you have you figured out your your you know, five Ys or uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other problem solving techniques that often uh, get discussed in management related uh, uh,
0: problem solving events. But, right. But some consultant has come in and said, hey, here's your silver bullet. This will solve your problems. Charge management a high price in order to convince them that this is the silver <laughs> bullet. And now management expects it to work. Well, I I, I think it's I think it's a little bit less devious than that. I
1: think it's oftentimes (laughs) I think it's oftentimes you know management is on the hook. You know, if if the plane doesn't take off to go run these tests, you know, I would say actually management is more likely to be replaced than the engineers who are working on it because they'll assume that the management just didn't know how to lead the team. But Mm -hmm. oftentimes it's. You know, so management wants to have a proactive role or feel like they're guiding the process in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, sometimes that's good. But oftentimes it's, let's, it's, uh, you don't know exactly, like you have a probability of intercept with uh, particular problems. You know, I have to have, I have to be running this test and two conditions have to align when the particular component is at, you know, negative 25 degrees C in a vibe condition. Uh, mm-hmm. And that management goes nuts uh, when you're just sitting there watching an experiment happen happen <laughs> for hours upon hours upon hours to get a null result. You know, oh, well, it wasn't that. Let's go look for the – what was the next thing we were going to try? <laughs> And I think communicating that you don't know certain things. And here's my strategy for ruling out, for working my way around the problem, I think is very important to communicate. And you can't assume that management is just going to sit, you know, looking through the glass at you run experiment after experiment without being, you know, uh, being made in, in involved in your decision making and experiment plotting uh uh
0: pl- plans i guess right right and, and uh lest i sound too harsh on managers let me just <laughs> admit that i've i've been in managerial roles and all my engineering knowledge suddenly disappears right <laughs> and so i i there was a situation where we had a, a machine on the shop floor and the the engineer that was uh, in charge of the the uh, the electronic design electrical design you know parts of it, it, it the logic wasn't working and i'm there now as not as engineer but as manager engineering manager and i in my brain i knew that he was going as fast as he could go right you know he's pedaling but i'm standing there with with a couple of customers looking at the machine going hey when are we going to get this done and what's going on and what's the explanation and he can't he can't tell me anything right i'm i'm trying to talk to him while he's trying to get the job done to figure out what's going on and and i hear the words coming out of my, my mouth you know mike you got to tell me something anything you know i when are you going to be done when are we going to where we got to move forward and I can see in his eyes he doesn't know. He's, you know, <laughs> if I were in that situation, I wouldn't know. Yet, as a manager, I'm begging him for anything that I can turn around and tell the the customer that's standing behind me to to make them think that we've got some handle on on what's going on. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it, it's amazing how you can can at least for me it was amazing how quickly I could switch between the engin- engineering role. When I was going, give me a little space, give me a little time, I'll figure it out. and the managerial role, which is, we have no space, we have no time. Give me an answer now.
1: And you feel incredibly helpless. Oh, uh, absolutely. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a revelation I had.
2: Yeah. Where now, so, so I, uh, I had made a, <laughs> sorry, I had made a comment to um, one of Manders um, about the, kind of a managerial company that's been working with us. How they kind of uh farmed out contracts they got to different companies. So really their only purpose was as uh kind of program management consulting. And uh, I was like, wow, it sounds like a pretty good business. You just get a contract, farm it out and collect the paycheck. That sounds great. And uh the manager's response of course was like, well yeah, but then you're not in charge of anything. And if something goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm like, oh that's you know, that's a uniquely stressful position to be in
0: yep yeah well and and I think that uh, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, jobs are largely not what people expected they you know people are constantly wanting uh, more out of their job and uh, it looks like the current situation is that uh, the majority of employees are looking outside their current organization that is beyond their current employer for their uh, next step opportunities uh, to further their career. And so this this creates a kind of an interesting uh, downward, well, not downward, but a spiral effect where uh, employees are less loyal to the companies. So the companies are less willing to invest in their employees through <laughs> training um, and benefits, that sort of thing, which makes the employees even less willing <laughs> to stay with the company. Um, yeah. And so, so we end up with this situation where i was having I was having this discussion in the last uh, couple of weeks with with people at at uh, the university where you know what do we do about this because the engineering employers do not want to spend money training you know young engineers because they all know it takes them two or three years to become really useful, and then once they've done that, the engineers immediately want to jump ship and go to some other employer so what's the incentive for them to do it well they now they now go well. You the university you train them right we're tired of being burned you train them and and the university is going well we're too busy teaching them you know thermo and kinematics and circuit analysis whatever you know whatever courses you take uh, to do all this to all to do all this uh, contextual you know professional practice training uh, what do you expect us to do so it's a it's an interesting problem uh, but I will point out that uh, most people it, it looks like the majority of employees these days don't think they're going to move up in their own company, but they have to move elsewhere uh, to advance their careers. Is that new?
1: I mean, d- if if I was to enter the engineering workforce 40 years ago, would that be any different? Do you think there was less mobility that people didn't hop from one co- company to another?
0: Absolutely. So my father started with uh, General Motors early in his career, and many of the people he started with were still at General Motors uh twenty five twenty six years later <laughs> when i got out of school and came and worked at the same company my father had. were they prisoners uh, no <laughs> uh but but they uh they were still there you know twenty five thirty years later they you know g m was a big company and you could move your entire career you know making career changes and move to other divisions and you could you could do that uh i don't think people are i don't I don't think many engineers are going out these days and saying, "Hey, I'm going to spend thirty years with the same employer yeah
1: i mean but uh, is it necessarily a is it uh does is that a result of uh inability to do different kinds of projects you know if you want to do design work and you're not doing design work you know I, I thought that's what you were referring to.
0: There may be a difference in expectations, you know a generational difference in expectations and i think in in prior generations you may wanted to uh you may wanted to have done design work, but more importantly, you wanted a paycheck right <laughs> the, the just the you know having enough enough money to put food on the table was the primary goal uh and so if you if you got the opportunity to do design work, that was great, but if they told you. You know, you had to stand out on the dock and count the boats that went by. You would stand out on the dock and watch the boats that went by.
1: Yeah. Or design a machine to do it. Or design a machine to do it for you, right.
0: <laughs> the good engineers would do that.
1: <laughs> that seemed to be the primary question
2: of, you know, a generation ago is, can I make enough to provide for my family? And now the primary, you know, existential question of, uh, I guess, people my generation and their careers is, is this good enough? And so you see a lot more, you know, lateral movement or hopefully upward movement or there's lots more um lots more career movement.
1: Until you have a mortgage.
2: <laughs> yeah. Full disclosure, I close on my house in uh a week and a half. So um yeah, so I'll be stuck for a while
0: then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well and I think that it's tougher. I I mean not uh, societally, I mean not just for engineers in that we have the internet and we have this global communication and so we can compare ourselves against everybody else. <laughs> so uh when I was coming out of college, the only thing I knew to compare myself against was maybe uh I would read about some entrepreneur in Inc magazine and go gee that that person was really bright and you know they started a new business and boy wasn't that cool. Uh, but if you read, th- you know, otherwise you read through the design, you know, design engineering in the magazines, the trade journals that came out, and there'd be a lot of, you know, ads for neat parts, and maybe an article about it, the occasional engineer. But other than what what I saw in the plant, I didn't know what any other engineers were doing, right? Yeah. Well, now I pull up YouTube and i can watch people all over the world doing all kinds of incredible design jobs and and you know designing electronics and designing uh, mechanical devices and and uh, uh you know there're just so so many wonderful things going on and so many creative people that uh you know now i feel like i'm so uh, uh so untalented in comparison <laughs> to all these people uh but in reality you know i am being exposed to the, the very best right the at the, the top of the youtube view chart will be those that that have really something special to show yeah uh and so i think that that now the difficulty is you go well if i if i'm not if i'm not performing at that level at that extraordinary level then i must not be worth anything and so i think a lot of, you know it's like being a, if you're a good basketball player not very many get to play in the nba the national basketball association uh, and so, does that mean you're not a good basketball player if you can't if you're good enough to play in college, but you can't play at the professional level? No, it just means you're not able to do that one special little thing. And and so, I think that uh, the difficulty for for today's generation is that, unlike mine, that sort of uh, you know ignorance is bliss. I didn't know that there are people doing all these talented things. You don't have that ignorance. You you have you're fully aware of just all the incredible challenges out there. And you keep looking, you know, well, if I don't, if I'm not doing this type of work, does my life have any meaning? Well, yes, your life does have incredible meaning, uh, but you don't necessarily have to be, you know, the the uh, leading, bleeding edge of, of technology in order to, uh, in order to, quote unquote, change the world.
1: Do you also think that there's been a, uh, that maybe a generation or generation and a half at this point of uh uh, glamorizing engineers, I'll, I'll round Steve Jobs and Bill Gates into the engineering category. Uh, Elon Musk, yeah, we're. I mean, uh, I look back to the moonshot and earlier, and it's hard to identify. Even Kelly Johnson at the time, it's hard to identify. You know, rock star esque engineers or engineers as the richest people in the world, and now it's pretty much one of the same. All of the richest people in the world were technically inclined or most of them, I should say, especially that's the, funny, especially the self-made ones. And now that's yeah. the stick that we're measuring, you know, each other by.
2: <laughs> it's funny. So I went to, went into engineering for many reasons, but, uh, like the sex appeal or rock star attitude was never one of <laughs> never had the stereotype, but now you bring it up. It's like, yeah, there are a lot. Um, but, real quick, I want to touch on um, kind of that you know kind of YouTube and seeing the highlight reel of um, engineering and it's really like a sampling error because like you said you already filtered through all the possible videos there are to just the very very best the most popular and then you see just the highlight reel of their career's work in this like two minute clip of you know quadcopters throwing catching you know balancing games to each other, which is actually like a real video they throw batons catching it's super cool. And you should see it. But as uh, so you see that and think like, wow, those engineers must have had a blast ignoring that there must have been a team of, you know, 20 people, one person, you know, his whole job was optimizing the propeller. One person whose job was refining the genetic algorithm. You know, there's now you see that and think that's one person's job is to design the new thing when it's really, you know, those incremental improvements. It's, you know, a huge team slowly refining an existing item to make it better, you know.
0: Right, but uh, but I will um, add that my experience has been, if your job is optimizing the the propeller, you know, you've got this neat system, complex yeah. system, and the world is full of more and more complex systems. Uh, there can be great joy in optimizing the propeller. I, I mean, the the downside oh, is absolutely. you won't be you won't be able to tell very many other people about it. The likelihood is you'll not be able to come home and explain to your spouse what it is. That you've done, (laughs) and the likelihood is that there won't be too many people at work that you'll be able to explain uh, exactly what you've done. But there will be other people, you know, at at conferences or the occasional, you know, you run into an engineer from a competitor or you know something happens, and you can share your joy of yes, you know, this 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 algorithm, this profile, this analysis worked. Uh, We we now have three percent better performance than we did before. And that you can find joy in that you don't you don't have to create the you know the next uh, google self driving car or the next Apple watch to find great joy in making this engineering improvement definitely but Jeff, what if we're driven by that, and now you're dooming a generation of
1: podcast listeners to
0: mediocrity <laughs> <laughs> be in my trailer <laughs> i i i'm I'm not saying that you have to settle for uh improving uh, propellers. And and if you're able to uh, put yourself into a position where you can oversee the project, uh, then go for it. I'm just saying that if you're the guy that's charged or gal that's charged with improving the propeller performance, there's, you know, there's nothing to feel bad about. That is is a... uh, a valid engineering job and do it to the best of your ability. And uh, if you really work at it, I think you'll find some joy in that process. Well, let's also remember any of our listeners are obviously in that top 1%. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I, I forgot about that. I should really apologize Erg's, to Elon. <laughs>
3: yeah. Didn't mean to hurt his feelings. But...
1: <laughs> no one listened. Well, right? yeah, the point is that, you
2: know, we're talking about kind of career expectations versus reality. And uh, right. if something violates your expectations, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Is the is kind of the point of this? Is that yeah? If you're optimizing propellers, is I don't know the example we keep coming back to, but really anything where it's you know in school you went into engineering think it'd be one thing, uh, your career was different, but that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad. It's yeah, just it's just different.
3: Definitely. I also would like to add that we should lay off the propellers because we're we're propped up here. Our, our podcast money <laughs> is from big propeller, so jet engines are just a fad. <laughs>
2: No, I've handed it in for a propeller designer for some time. <laughs> they,
3: they try and do the fluid flow around the, uh, the spinning blades. just It's too much. It's too many moving parts.
0: <laughs> right. So uh, since we've we sort of covered the idea of uh, job expectations, uh, we, let's talk a little bit about uh, career expectations. Um, and that is as you, you plan out your career and you go, okay, this job is giving me you know, a portion of what I want, but I want more. I don't want to be just designing propellers for the rest of my life. So, you know, what do you do? Well, I think that you need to start very specifically thinking about what it is you want. What are your personal expectations? And so, are you after more money? Is that what you really want? Are you after more power or prestige? Uh, Do you want to uh, be in a, a position of greater leadership or authority? Are you looking for... Uh, say, more intrinsic uh, benefits like wisdom or insight? Uh, are you really looking for respect from your colleagues uh, or just experience in a technical field or, or uh, an ability in a technical field? So these are all, um, you know, good career expectations, but I think you need to be specific about which of those uh, you want because different jobs and different career paths will give you different of those uh, features. Uh, and you also have to be think carefully about what you're willing to give up. So you know, if you want more money, are you willing to move across the country to get it? Uh, if you want more prestige, are you willing to change fields or work for a different company? Uh, are you willing to work for, say, less money for a while? Give up your family life because this job requires that you work 80 hours a week? Do you, are you willing to assume more responsibility and therefore probably greater stress in order to take on a managerial role? If you want, you know, experience and be really knowledgeable, are you willing to fail in front of others? Because that's how you get experience by failing. Uh, so, my my point is that as you as you look out and you start to think about uh, what your expectations are for a career, I think that you have to realize there's a trade off. And my father always said that engineering is the art of compromise. And I think that in in designing an engineering career, uh, the same thing is true. You have to decide what you what you really want because you're gonna have to give up something to get there.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's um like for example, I'm I'm aircraft mechanical engineering, so that's my all my examples are that. But sure. um if you say design a structure that is the exact you know uh minimum uh amount of material or you know exact uh minimum stress, it's probably going to be horrible to machine. And uh, if it's really <laughs> easy to machine, it's probably gonna be really hard to install. And so you know if it's really easy to install, then it's gonna be really hard to analyze and so you're constantly doing that marriage of uh you know of different requirements for your design and so your optimum design is probably going to be something that not no one is actually happy with (laughs) so it's (laughs) (laughs) but it's you know it's kind of the optimum of you know low machining costs and low installation costs and you know it's easier to uh, analyze and so yeah like you said the art of compromise i'm on board
0: right well, and I, th- I think the other thing that we have to uh, keep in mind as you start to plan out your career, where you want to go, is is realize uh, that there's a wide number of organizations you can work for, right? So uh, if you've decided, you, you know, no matter whether you want more money or leadership or respect or whatever you're after, uh, if you work at a big company, there's going to be more structure. They're more rigid in their money-making you know process right it's got a bigger ship it's going to be tougher to you know turn the direction of the ship uh, so there's more structure you're more like there's more levels of of uh, bureaucracy of management uh, generally uh, you so you'll have more guidance there's less ability to sort of freelance uh, because you've got to get approvals but if you want you know you want a designated health plan you want a very specific educational benefit uh, you want to you you want to know that the group that you want to move into is been there for many years and will you know continue to be there, a big company is probably a better place to go. Uh if you're looking for less guidance, you want it to be a little more improvisational, then then maybe a, a small company would be a better place to go. Uh usually they expect someone that has a few more years of experience because there's a little less guidance. Um and if you're you know you're really crazy, then you can go with a startup. You know, God only knows what you'll be asked to do uh to keep that going. <laughs> and And if you're really nuts <laughs> uh you become self employed which means you you uh you put on all the hats uh but you can always say that you know I did it my way you know <laughs> it may be wrong, but you're the boss, so you get to get to call the shot so um in in as you plan out your career, you may want to give some thought to not just the the type of job like I want to work in medical devices but the size of the organization you want to, you want to be in. So are you wanting to work for, you know, a huge medical device company or maybe a smaller medical device startup?
2: Yeah. And as far as um, what your strengths are, uh can be used differently depending on the industry. For example, mm-hmm. if it's an industry where it's very safety critical and very expensive um, and you're not allowed to prototype, then your analysis and uh kind of substantiation skills will be used the most like you're not allowed to build a practice bridge you know or build a practice airplane (laughs) or if you want but but you know you're not allowed to yeah so um those industries where it's very expensive to prototype and it's very safety critical your you know your analysis skills are keen whereas um industries where you can make all kinds of prototypes that's where the tinkerers and the hands-on people might flourish more so um within the you know big company little company startup structures of what you want uh there's also the what your skill set is best at
0: sure and I, so i think that as you as you sort of map this out and you try to figure out what your your career roadmap looks like uh you need to be aware of what your strengths are and uh uh you know think Think about the, the skills and expertise that you're going to need, uh, regardless of what organization you're working for. So while you want to be aware that I can work for a smaller organization, it may not, you know, ABC company may not be there in 10 years, right? Uh, the, you know, the big, uh, the big uh, companies, the S&P 100, the length of, of life for those companies keeps getting shorter and shorter. So we can't necessarily know that, that any company is going to be around 10 years from now. Um, so you want to be concentrating not on a job with a particular company, but, you know, your skills and expertise over the years. And so, you you know, if if your particular career path requires certain certifications, you know, obviously we assume that you 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 got your engineering education, so you've got an engineering degree. But if you need a PE license or you need certain certifications, then, you know, you want to start getting those uh, to move yourself uh, down the career path that you're looking for.
3: It's also never too late to reevaluate what you want out of your engineering career as well. Um, back in my first co-op, one of the senior mechanical designers or something like that, I can't remember his exact title. Um, he, you know, he, he was a manager of a bunch of people, and I guess over the years he'd slowly been drifting away from design and he up and left, you know, sometime during my Uh, co-op. It was amicable and everything, but he just said, you know, I don't want to be a manager anymore. I want to get back to the design work I loved all those years ago. And, you know, I don't see the opportunity here. So it's it's not just for new college grads trying to find their way.
0: Oh, no. As as someone who basically (laughs) decided to go, you know, completely change uh, career paths in his 40s, no, <laughs> it's 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 never too late to uh, to change the direction you want to go.
2: No, definitely. And uh, there's so many uh, there's so many career paths that uh, you probably won't even be aware of until many years into your career. Like I had a friend who did uh, aerodynamic flood analysis of uh, airfoils, which mm-hmm. I didn't even know was a thing until senior year, maybe. Um, and uh, you know, going back to the different certification signs. There's so many different uh, uh, certification dr tickets you can have that uh, most people aren't aware of until years into their aviation career.
0: Yeah, uh, the I mean that's the beauty of technology always changing. Is there's new jobs and new new challenges always arriving. Definitely. Right. So we've uh, we've talked a little bit about job expectations and career expectations and and uh, planning a career roadmap. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll sort of start to wind this up talking about the, uh, the whole idea of changing the world, which is where we started this podcast or this episode.
3: I think Archimedes had it figured out, don't you? You just need a fulcrum and a place to stand. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. I think that was to move the world, maybe not to change it.
3: Well, I mean, you know, you move the world enough, all of a sudden we're not orbiting the sun very stably anymore. So things have changed. Yeah.
2: Might counteract global
0: warming.
3: <laughs> Let's get a little closer to Mars, cool things off for a bit. <laughs> so got, all right, everybody get over to the one side of the world and push. But we got to go fast because we spin around. And we want to push us closer to the sun.
2: The rest of this podcast will be comedic solutions to global warming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a really big air conditioner.
3: I was I was going to say that too. If we all took the ice out of our freezer and threw it outside, you know, it's not doing us any good because it's in the freezer and that keeps the cold yeah. in.
1: See, you just have to leave the refrigerator door open. Bam, Earth gets colder. <laughs> Although I'm not necessarily sure I believe in global warning,
0: warming. Warming, um, being where I live and what the temperature is this week.
1: You nope, know,
3: it's 90 and humid here, so there's plenty of global warming.
0: <laughs> I think we were at 40. And humid. Oh, no. See, I grew, up in,
2: <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. So we had, you know, multiple feet of snow. And now I live in Florida and it's been summer for two years and I just don't get it.
3: <laughs> Anyways, we had some kind of topic when we, before we got off on our saving the world.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, so Lord I was going to say that, that uh, two thirds of college students think that they're going to change the world. And so again uh, that may be a generational thing but I also note that uh, there's a survey of uh, millennial workers and they say that uh, young people in their 20s would like new jobs and new assignments every 12 to 24 months and won't wait for 3 to 5 won't wait 3 to 5 years for a promotion and so that seems to be a little bit at odds with the company promoting them into the, into these positions. You know, again, we get into the spiral. And the other thing uh, that this article notes is that millennials are focused on achieving through personal networks and technology, having good work-life balance, and getting high levels of support from their managers. They don't want to be tied to an organization, a timetable, or a hierarchy, and they'd rather avoid the stress they see their senior leaders shouldering. Hmm. That, that doesn't have any long-term implications at all. What happens when they uh, oh. they retire? <laughs> Well, I, so I I don't know. I mean, that sounds beautiful, but I don't know how somebody has to shoulder the stress, right? Uh, Somebody has to work a lot of hours to get things done because problems seem complex. Uh, Anytime you work on those types of problems, you have to balance, you know, your work-life balance is going to get out of skew. And I'm not sure you can do that. You have to decide what is important to you. And uh, I don't know, there's, there's, books and books and articles and articles and, you know, lots of life spent, you know, trying to decide how you achieve a good work-life balance. But I'm just, my experience has been all these things are very difficult. So more power to the young engineers of the world. You know, I'm, the best thing you got going for is your optimism.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting about uh, people in their 20s, you know, liking new jobs every 12 to 24 months because the conventional wisdom, at least in my company, is that uh engineer doesn't really become competent at their job till three to six months into it. And you don't really start learning technical knowledge until, you know, yeah, three to six month mark. A lot uh up to that point it's all company processes and how, you know, to release documents or where everything is. Uh so to you know, switch a job every 12 months, uh, you're really cutting yourself short on the technical knowledge developmental time.
3: Yeah. You got to wonder how much you're really moving the needle there.
1: Yeah. Right. That's, uh, that's interesting. But you got twice as many
0: HR presentations. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right. So, so again, lest I seem too cynical, uh, I do believe people can make change, (laughs) but, but you've got to be willing to start small. You know, every business starts with the first customer, Every journey begins with the first step. You know, you will not change the world overnight. Uh, Most people don't change the world overnight. I guess there are a few that do, but uh, uh, start small and keep plugging away.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You you can't, uh, can't change the world overnight. Like you said, you know, go into one of my favorite examples that I always draw on, you know, Jim Williams and Bob Pease. They, they have thousands of pages published under their names that everyone are still studying today. That didn't happen overnight. That was over a forty, fifty-year career, and you know, just really loving their field and learning everything they could about it. And you know, we we only see the best of it. I'm sure there's some pretty ugly lab notebooks of first drafts out there, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> I like to think it's not a matter of uh, amplitude, but of precision. So, like, they will change the world just in very tiny ways, like an extra Facebook page, just a really um, no, I hope they do. Obviously that's, um, that's a noble goal.
0: Right. And as we talked earlier, technology is changing it. Uh, I don't know how old is, uh, YouTube just celebrated 10 years. You know, if you were more than 10 years ago, there was wow. no YouTube, right? We've radically changed our ability to communicate visual information, mm-hmm. uh, video over a 10 year span. Now, if you're if you're 20 years old, 10 years seems like a long time. If you're like me, several decades older, 10 10 years doesn't seem like that long a time anymore. And uh, it makes me just wonder okay. at, at what incredible things are going to happen in the next 10 years. So, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat cynical about you know trying to think you're going to change the world overnight. But again, the 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 guys that started YouTube they started with one video. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know it was going to be that great. But they kept plugging away at it and, and uh they made it great. But there was still some dumbass who commented first and they were the only two of the counts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. Well tell you what, uh Patrick, we've uh we've run on for a while, so we should probably think about wrapping this up and uh letting you go. Any advice you have for uh those wanting to uh to plot out their career or those wanting to get into the uh to the aviation or uh aeronautics business yeah i guess it would be pursue um no it's hypocritical of me
2: to give aviation career advice because i i'm not running the industry so uh (laughs) i i'm no means you know an expert in what how to succeed um but i guess pursue it the same way you would an engineering problem where you can't look at the data you look at you know examples where you know in engineering that might be example problems and in uh your career that might be uh People or you know mentors that have had successful careers and see what they did, and uh, a lot of times, at least in my case, I've found that they've uh, done their work, you know, during their work hours, but then they've that's kind of the start of their day, and they did uh, their you know enrichment and uh, learning on their own time, and uh, so just kind of approaching your career in the same way you would an engineering problem, uh, specifically with aviation. There's so much. Uh, so much knowledge outside of the math. No, um that looking at the the FAA libraries is a really good way to start. Okay.
0: Well, that's fantastic advice. Uh, and if our, our listeners should uh, want to get a hold of you or or ask further questions, is there some place we can direct them? Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, you can hit me up at my email address. It's uh, Patrick at liftoffengineering dot com, and I'm open for. You know, any, I'm open to talk about aviation or engineering. Obviously, I just talked about it for almost two hours. So I'm a pretty <laughs> big fan of it. Um, but uh, yeah, we're just, you know, I love new challenges and new projects. It's why I'm in engineering in the first place. So feel free to reach out if, you know, you need an aircraft engineer or just want to, you know, try something new. So yeah, it's uh, Patrick at liftoffengineering.com.
3: You also do children's parties, correct?
2: <laughs> you got it. <laughs> terrible balloon animals it's always snakes
3: <laughs> I think you could twist them into some kind of propeller you're, you're fine
0: <laughs> it's a fuselage with no wings <laughs> right yep all right Patrick well thank you so much for uh, coming on the Engineering Commons and sharing your expertise with us we've uh, really appreciated it thank you guys it's been a blast yeah thank you for coming on happy to have you thanks Patrick yeah, thank you Thanks. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.